This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. Our time together each week begins with an explanation from Tim Keller about one of six essential elements of a missionary encounter. Next come conversations with scholars and practitioners of various sorts who study these things and apply them in diverse contexts throughout Europe and North America. How do Christians behave in the various cultural sectors in which we live and move six and a half days per week? In education, government, in the economy, the arts, and at work. Our goal is a missionary encounter with Western culture. This episode takes a look at what a missionary encounter might look like in the mundane structures and systems of everyday life, in the public spheres where our common life takes place. Tim Keller proposes we strive for faithful presence that functions like salt and light in the secular cultures of the West. As uncontroversial as that might sound, it works against some of our instincts to either war against or accommodate to the broader culture. Our first guest, Missy Wallace, tells us what it looks like to be a faithful presence at work and casts a vision for seeing our jobs as one of the primary venues for putting our faith into practice. Next, artist Makoto Fujimura invites us to see artists and other makers as bridge builders between the church and the world. He introduces the concept of culture care. But first, Tim Keller. Faithful Christian Presence in Public Spheres For years, the churches in the West assumed that their members lived in a culture that was the product of Christianity. Leslie Newbigin points out that when Christians worked in the fields of education, medicine, art, music, agriculture, politics, and economics, they did not need to ask the church for guidance. In general, the acknowledged masters in each field would operate on the basis of fundamentally Christian understandings of reality and morality. That means... As Leslie Newbigin wrote, quote, the church could, without immediate and obvious disaster, confine themselves to specifically religious concerns, to the provision for the opportunities for worship, religious teaching, and fellowship, knowing that their members will, in their secular occupations, still have some real possibility of maintaining Christian standards of thought and practice. Therefore, the churches tended to become loosely compacted fellowships within a wider semi-Christian culture. Unquote. Now, all of this has changed, of course. We live today in a culture dominated by non-Christian thought and themes about reason and science, about individualism, relativism, materialism. So even though non-Christian culture may contain vast amounts of good, believers are members of a community animated by a set of sharply different principles. And this reality requires us to decide how to faithfully engage the world around us. James Hunter, professor of religion, culture, and social theory at the University of Virginia, identifies three cultural strategies Christians have tried over the years, all of them flawed. He mentions this in his book, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. He calls these three strategies defensive against the culture, seeking to dominate it, seeking purity from the culture, to withdraw from it, and to compromise with the culture and be assimilated by it. As an alternative to these, Hunter argues that we should strive for faithful presence within the culture. According to Hunter, Christians do not withdraw from culture, but they do not compromise, and they also do not try to dominate. They simply enter every field seeking to be salt and light, trying to serve, and yet at the same time being true to their Christian faith. They're faithful, which means they stay true to the Bible, but they're present. Pursuing faithful presence today will be controversial, Elizabeth Brunig, who writes on religion for the Washington Post, wrote a fascinating article called In God's Country. It was about how evangelicals' view of changing culture has shifted over time. Using different terms, she suggests essentially that the primary evangelical strategy of the previous generation was defensive against culture. In other words, to work to change society by taking power and legislating Christian laws. Today, by contrast, evangelicals don't expect to change society They feel like that ship has sailed. Today, they want to protect their lifestyle in a bubble so that they can live the way they want to live. The impulse to shape society has been replaced by the impulse to retreat from it. In other words, 
faithful presence will run counter to the primary way evangelicals presently engage culture. That means every Christian will need guidance from fellow Christians, and not merely about private spiritual disciplines and in religious gatherings. Rather, believers will need help from the church for thinking and living at every decisive point in public as well as private life, in life within the workplace as well as within the church. Every society has a cultural economy, a set of public sectors in which ideas and practices are forged that will direct how people live in the culture. These include the academy, business, the arts, the media, law and government, and many others. This means that the church must train and disciple Christians to integrate their faith with their work in these public spheres. As Leslie Newbigin writes, in the daily business of the councils of government, the boardrooms of transnational corporations, the trade unions, the universities, and the schools. This is an expansive vision for Christian influence in every area of human life, not because Christians are dominant there, but because they're faithful there. For this vision to be realized, Newbigin argues, and I quote, we need to create above all possibilities in every congregation for lay people to seek illumination from the gospel for their daily secular duty. The work of scientists, economists, political philosophers, artists, and others must be illumined by insights derived from rigorous theological thinking. For such a declericalized theology, the role of the church will be that of servant, not mistress. This last statement, that the church is a servant, is crucial. Within Christendom, it is the clergy who have all the answers for how to do mission. But pastors do not know enough about every vocational field to know how the gospel influences work in that sector. In this endeavor, clergy and lay people sit down as equals, each with some knowledge the other does not have, to plan for Christian witness in public life. Christians are often told to keep their values and faith out of the public sphere. Otherwise, they will be imposing their views on others. Of course, this makes the false assumption that it is possible to do one's work without reference to comprehensive beliefs derived from a coherent worldview. And ironically, to tell individuals that they must keep their beliefs private is to impose secular beliefs about religion and the world on Christians. Instead, the church should train Christians not to seal off their faith from their work, but to think out the implications of their Christian beliefs for their work. Matthew 5.13 says, we are to be, quote, salt of the earth, unquote. That's a wonderful metaphor. In ancient times, salt was used not only to bring flavor out of the meat, but also to preserve it from decay. So when Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth, he meant we're supposed to be honest, work hard, do good, and keep things from becoming corrupt, but also to be open about our Christianity. Jeremiah 29 tells us that after the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, they were to seek the peace of the city. They were to plant gardens, build houses, seek its prosperity. We can still serve people, be good neighbors, and be involved in culture while being faithful to and open about our Christianity. If Christians are equipped to do this, the gospel will become salt and light in culture, much more naturally than if we took a more political approach in which Christians sought to gain the reins of coercive power or took a more withdrawn approach in which being a Christian was seen as something you did only in private with no application to every area of life. I think that one thing that is very important for churches, for pastors, for marketplace leaders to understand is that work is and has become one of the most important things in humans' life. This is Missy Wallace. Missy is executive director for the Global Faith and Work Initiative at Redeemer City to City. Her prior experience includes both corporate and nonprofit leadership, and so she brings to her role a well-rounded and comprehensive vision for the integration of faith and work. I talked to Missy about the priority of work in people's lives and what that means for ministry. Gallup did a survey a few years ago, um, and it's called What the Whole Wide World is Thinking. They did this survey trying to understand if there were any trends across the world that defied whether you're an urban or rural setting. It defied what socioeconomic class you are, whether you're a developed country or a developing country. And Gallup found what they say is the single largest finding in the history of Gallup. 
And that finding is that people care more about work than anything else. And so, I, I mean, the way the, the CEO commented on it is humans used to desire love, money, food, shelter, safety, peace, and freedom more than anything else. The last 30 years have changed us. Um, and now what they want is a good job. And so that and he goes on to talk about how everything for leaders needs to be carried out through the lens of people care deeply about their work. And so if you're a pastor, if you're a church, if you are trying to um, help people understand the promises of Christ, if you are trying to impact your city, um, you need to do that through the lens of people care deeply about their work. So their work now becomes an on-ramp to understanding the promises of the gospel. Seeing their work through Christ's redemption is a way to understand the promises of the gospel. The church doesn't need to know all about finance. They don't need to know all about advertising or all about plumbing or all about manufacturing or all about mowing lawns, but they do need to know how to, how to help and disciple the people that attend their church to take frameworks back into their world and think through what does being a Christian mean to plumbing? What does it mean if I'm an investment banker? What does it mean if I write songs for a living? That becomes the role of the church if they really want to be missional. If the church really wants to be missional, it needs to take the 200 people um, that it sends out, or 1,000 people, or 80 people, that it sends out five to six days a week and teach them what does it mean to love people, places, and things to life right where they are. What are a handful of maybe misconceptions that people have about the conversation about faith and work? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this question. So... Um, <laughs> Faith and work, people tend to kind of fall into some buckets. One of the buckets is faith and work means evangelism. That's my job is to, you know, count how many suppliers we have and multiply by five is the average family size. And that's how, that's my mission field. And I need to convert them or I need to save them. I need to bring them to Christ, show the love of Christ. So they come to Christ. A second bucket of people is my job is to show up and be the most excellent and ethical worker possible. Ethics is part of faith and work. Another bucket is I need to be um, very deeply in conversation with the spirit so that the spirit is guiding my work. So it's a very private um, vertical relationship with Christ. And then another bucket is it's all about social action. Am I able to feed the poor through my work? Um, am I doing some kind of social justice through my work or am I making enough money to then go give a bunch of money to the people doing that? And so the, the truth is that any of those buckets in isolation are truncating the gospel a little bit. To me, faith and work is the holistic view of that the gospel changes everything about your work. And so um, and we use a we use a triad called Heart Community World. And so your faith should be a place where you are in deep conversation with the spirit and you are being sanctified. And it is a it is a place with a great vertical relationship between you and Christ. But it is also a place with a horizontal relationship with your community where out of that thankfulness and gratitude and love of what Christ has done, you can love the people around you. You can love your competitors. You can think about the way to interact with people no matter what your sphere of influence is, you have a sphere of influence um, with a group of people that you're in community with. And then the third part of the triangle is the world. And so then further thinking about um, what do you know about the world to be true? So you know that um, your industry has some creational goodness. How can you think about what is good in your industry and what is broken in your industry? And how can you look for the broken systems and push against the systems? So thinking about it in, in that term. And so to me, faith and work is all of it. It is natural evangelism. It is ethics and um, behaviors. It is um, how you impact your community. It is how you impact your world. So it's, it's how is God using your workplace to develop you? And then how do you use your role in your work to bless others and to push against the darkness? Um, so I think that's the more hol holistic view of it. And, and where you are 
socioeconomically and how much agency you have and um, all these things, they, they may change the nuance of what it means day to day, but it doesn't change the overarching heart community world triad. And it doesn't change the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, you know, biblical narrative that we were created to work, but work is broken. Um, we're part of God's unfolding story to push against um, darkness. And when he comes again, work will be perfect. Could you uh, back up and explain a term that you used in that response? You mentioned creational good. Can you tell us what you mean by that? I think we know the two terms, creation and good, but when you put them together and you're applying it to work, what does that mean? In, in the first um, book of our scriptures, um, there's something called the cultural mandate, which is basically God says, go out and be fruitful and multiply and go out and take dominion. And some biblical scholars who are far more studied than I am um, have been able to help me understand that that actually means go out and create flourishing. Go out and create flourishing in your communities. And so um, if you, um, and you can look at some passages in Isaiah and whatnot, and you can see in the new heaven and the new earth, you see like the ships of Tarsus are coming back in for the new heaven and the earth. And the ships of Tarsus actually represented kind of um, the evil of commerce in parts of the scriptures, right? And here they are coming back. They are part of the new heaven and the new earth. They aren't thrown out. The Bible starts in a garden and ends in the city, right? So we can we can draw some inferences that God has intended for, or he intended for commerce to come up, right? He intended for these various spheres, education. Our societies cannot run without these spheres. And so if we believe God is sovereign, and therefore if we believe that he knew and um, unleashed us to create these spheres of economic sphere, uh, family sphere, the education sphere, um, the religion sphere, church sphere, et cetera, et cetera. And that these spheres themselves represent some goodness of God, but just like us who are broken, these spheres are broken too. So when I say the creational goodness of an industry, let's take finance because finance is often determined as like this horrible secular industry that's so greedy. Okay, let's imagine there was no financial sphere can you imagine if we were still trying to trade goat's milk for erasers, right? I mean, just chaos, right? It's chaos. You had to have an economic sphere develop for a community to flourish. And so if you think of um, God's goodness, one thing that um, banking represents of God is a redistribution of resources from those who have much to those who have few. That is part of God's character, right? We've seen um, that in the scriptures and we've seen that in Jesus. Well, banking does that. Banking is an organized way to redistribute resources. Now, banking is broken, right? Banking has some greed involved. Um, do the profits, do the need for profits um, impact the distribution equity? Um, what happens if the um, certain segments are left completely out of the redistribution? How do you think through that, right? I don't have all the answers to that. I can't tidy that up in a bow, but I can say that we know that industries have good qualities of, of God. Music, right? God's creativity. Education is all about um, God's wisdom. Even someone had me analyze the NFL one time. I was like, oh gosh, if you're an international <laughs> listener, that's the National Football League in America. I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to like, this one's super controversial. Um, and I got another pastor involved who actually was a former professional football player. And I said, talk to me about the creational goodness of professional football, because that one's hard for me. And he said, Missy, it brings community together, brings community together to pull for something um, that's fun. And is it broken? Are people getting hurt? Is the pay messed up? Oh, yes, you can go down all these routes. But he said there there is something good about bringing a community together to be excited about something. There's something beautiful about that. Um, so I think it's um, a great exercise for Christians to go through to think about their industry and what creational goodness exists and um, then start to think about why it's broken. And then where can you play a role pushing against the brokenness, whatever your small sphere is. And some industries, it's harder than others. Um, but 
I find it very hard to find an industry that I can't find some creational good in. And I think it's a really helpful uh, thing to imagine that the role that I'm in may be several degrees from its intended purpose, but it's serving some function that was intended from the beginning. And I think thinking through that is a really powerful activity. And, you know, it also helps us understand the concept of common grace. And so it allows us to be super excited about the good work of humans because it allows us to take the view that the image of God is in that human and therefore they have the ability to do good work and that anything good that comes of that work is of God, whether they want to believe in that God or not. And so it allows us to work in such a more um, loving and arm in arm way with our neighbors who may think differently than us. And um, so understanding the thoughts about common grace was a very empowering um, experience for me just to be freed up to love the work, um, the good work coming out of everyone, regardless of their beliefs. Well, you develop all of these ideas that we're talking about here into uh, training experiences, curricula, other things, both for ministry leaders and marketplace professionals through the Global Faith and Work Initiative. Tell us about the work you do through the Global Faith and Work Initiative and the vision that you hope people will catch uh, through the work that you do. So the Global Faith and Work Initiative is the arm of city to city that really focuses on faith and work. And we're trying to equip, connect, and mobilize um, churches and individuals to live missionally for Christ in all aspects of their life, particularly their work life, and to realize that the gospel changes everything, and that includes their work. And so um, we're doing that a variety of ways. But what I most hope that people could catch the vision of is faith and work is not something you get around to later, once your career is well underway. Or if you're a pastor, it's not something you get to once you have um, your people tithing and you have enough people showing up and you have um, some stability. I would rather say it's the opposite way around. That if you don't understand how your faith impacts your work from the very beginning, or if you're a pastor, every from the minute you plant a church, how can everything you're doing be thinking about your congregants' work? Because that, according to Gallup, is their very most important thing in their life right now, more than love, peace, and security, which absolutely blows my mind. So <laughs> that's what your congregants care about, and you're trying to encourage them to show up at church. You need to be preaching in ways that talk about their work. You need to be thinking about city impact in ways that they can do it from their work. You need to be thinking about um, what work suffering does for their hearts. You need to be thinking about blogging um, about um, their work. How about visiting them at their workplaces? Um, how about creating discipleship tracks that think through work? Um, so to me, um, the thing that I most hope people understand is faith and work is not something to Velcro on. It's not a side gig. It's not a extra. It's how do you live the gospel all in Jesus Christ, Lord of life, every single day and understand that the gospel changes everything. And that means work. For Missy and the Global Faith and Work Initiative, work is the tip of the spear for a missionary encounter with culture because it's something everyone does, formally or informally, within the household or outside of it, everyone works. And that means everyone can be a faithful presence, regardless of the status of their particular job. If you think about the triad of heart community world, everybody has full access to heart right? So that is about um, your relationship with Christ and understanding how um, your work, how you were created to work and what kind of um, sacrificial attitude you bring to work, how the suffering from work might sanctify you, how you ethically behave at work. Um, that might be the heart level. Everyone has access to that. Um, if you think about community, everybody has access to that. So what does the gospel mean about how I interact with those 
that I'm in community with at my work. When you talk about the world piece is when um, maybe the people with more organizational agency have more significant ability to make a change. However, they're often blind to the change that needs to be made. So it often takes the people that are perhaps um, less high in the hierarchy to have some courage to use what agency they have to point out some things that are broken in a loving way. Um, or it takes someone in the middle of the organization to see a broken system that is hurting individuals and have the courage to speak out on their behalf of how um, a, a, a process or a policy or something that can get changed. Can you give us an example of one of the scenarios you just mentioned of somebody kind of on the field level of an organization that sees things that need to change and is able to get that change enacted or someone in the middle of the organization uh, advocating for that same kind of change? So I have a, an example that's really stayed with me and it stayed with me because using Tim's words about faithful presence right? This person faithfully showed up and this story didn't all get tied up with a bow while he was still there. It actually continued after he, he left. So he catalyzed something. And so it was a middle manager um, of a publicly traded healthcare company. And so as a publicly traded company, there was not a lot of flexibility on um, what needed to happen with profitability with shareholder expectations, right? And so it created some constraints that in a privately held company maybe wouldn't have been there. So he noticed that absenteeism, when it was unexpected and not related to illness, when it happened at the minimum wage worker level, it was much longer, more consecutive days than it, when it happened at the... Um, higher education or higher pay level. So people who were not making minimum wage, when they had an unexpected absence, it was short. People who were making minimum wage, unexpected absence, long. He started pulling that apart. And so he showed me the example of, um, my car battery breaks down today. My car battery breaks down, um, no problem. I can have it fixed in three hours and then drive to work, or I can just Uber to work, right? if you're in a setting where you drive to work. In this setting, car battery breaks down. They don't have enough money to get the new battery, much less um, call the tow truck or pay for an Uber. So they've got to get themselves to payday loan, get a loan at what a 25% interest rate, uh, advance pay, then figure out how to get to the battery store and so on and on and on. So the minimum wage worker, the car battery breaks down. It was a two and a half to three day affair me, it's a three hour affair. He started going, hmm, let me look into that. And so over and over and over, he saw that st structural things that were very easy for someone with a good amount of disposable income to fix were super, super hard for the minimum wage worker to fix. And so he suggested um, an employee emergency fund to help with things like this, whether it be get to work with a new burr or all these kinds of things. Well, um, he ended up presenting this in a weird securitous way to the head of people management. And that was that. And about a week later, he got a call from someone else that said, did you prove to the head of HR that our minimum wage workers are working poor? He said, well, why, why do you ask? And he said, because she just came in and flipped her point of view on whether we should be paying for nursing salaries for the minimum wage technicians that wanted to move up in the organization by receiving more education. The story is interesting because someone in the middle said, hey, minimum wage workers have some constraints that I don't have that make them be absent. They don't wanna be absent, they don't get paid. I don't want them to be absent. My clinics don't work well. If I could reduce their absenteeism just a tiny bit, the company does better, the worker does better, I do better. How can I reduce the absenteeism? Wow, this is broken. And when he illuminated the brokenness, someone who did have the agency to make a change said, well, I don't know if we're going to make the change you suggest, but I over here see this policy that I can impact because I now understand 
I used to think that the minimum wage technician, if they wanted to get the higher nursing degree and move up, they should pay for part of their own degree. But I, head of HR, now understand they can't even pay for a car battery. They sure can't pay for a part of their own degree. So if I want them to move up in the company, I need to help pay them to do it. And so it actually unleashed a tuition benefit for this whole group of minimum wage workers at a publicly traded company because this middle manager pointed out a broken area. Um, he's gone on to work in another industry, but he recently got a call and someone's actually called him. They're actually working on the emergency fund now as well. He was a faithful presence. He looked at a problem. He said, why does it exist? Who is hurt in this problem? What can we do to change it? Um, and presented it. Yeah, we're immersed in war language, aren't we? Even the word engage. Um, I know Tim uses that word. Um, but I, I've always felt that uh, the, the way that we frame even questions um, are tinged by uh, this power struggle of fighting against limited resource and fighting within limited resource environment to protect your turf. This is Mako Fujimura. Mako is a painter, arts advocate, and writer. In his books, Culture Care and Art and Faith, Mako articulates a vision for faithful presence in the arts world in which creatives can help build bridges between the church and the broader culture. Our conversation centered on common grace and how the gospel can bring a feeling of abundance into a world marked by scarcity. Of course, art, especially contemporary art, can be very much about protecting your own turf and defending your ideologies and creating destructive, dark ways of describing the world, which to a lot of people is, is the only honest way. But very early on, as I began to understand my role um, as a follower of Christ in that uh, contemporary art world, you know, I felt I had to really, for myself, challenge the assumption. It's scarcity and assumption, first of all. Of course, if you think about it in a Darwinian sense, it is, it is law, you know, <laughs> law of scarcity. You have to begin there because you have that competition. But when you read the Gospels, you know, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is almost creating an alternative paradigm, an antidote uh, to those assumptions. He's invoking creation into new creation, therefore assuming abundance. Uh, instead. And so it's a clear contrast uh, between how the gospel presents itself to the world. And so when I wrote Culture Care and um, lectured on it over the years, I, I became very aware that, you know, even the word cultural engagement is tinged with this notion of uh, resources being restricted and scarce, and therefore we have to fight for every inch where I, I think we should be, in, in terms of generative culture, we, we really need to be, I think, assuming that God's abundance is already present in, in, in the context of culture. And uh, we are to do the hard work of digging, preparing the soil, and then planting things that will grow uh, in, in, in the abundance of, of that soil. What Mako calls culture care here requires a deep conviction about common grace, the belief that God is at work in the world, not only among Christians or in the church, but blessing and inspiring all people in every area of life, whether they acknowledge his activity or not. It assumes, to put it more simply, that God is at work long before his people show up. Shifting from a culture war mentality to a culture care mentality results in radically different ways of relating to secular society. Culture care is a nonviolent resistance against cultural wars. Um, I, I'm not saying that we can just be passive and be a pacifist in that sense. I mean, there are issues that we have to, you know, fight 
over, and uh, certainly there are issues that uh, require uh, directly addressing it. Um, and yet, I, I find myself thinking, is the premise of culture wars, you know, the, the assumption there is that this is the only way because we are, again, faced with scarcity here, and, and if we lose, uh, they will win. Or if they will win, we lose. <laughs> That's a huge assumption, <laughs> you know, first of all. I have worked uh, inside the world of the arts, um, and many people, especially Christians, you know, find that world to be very dark and transgressive and tainted in so many ways. But my experience has been that even artists who are so alienated from God or religion or the church has understanding of transcendence. Uh, oftentimes I find myself listening to them and I hear the Holy Spirit's voice through them, even though they may claim to be an atheist or um, anti-God in some sense. but. I think when you are involved in a business of making, you can't help but to invite the spirit to co-create and dance. And that's when I began to think about the thesis of cultural care, uh, which is to basically start out by changing the metaphor uh, rather than seeing the territory of cultures or culture as a battleground to be fought over. Uh, you change the metaphor. What if it is a garden to steward, or you know, to till, uh, ecosystem to steward, to take care of? Yeah, you know, the mental image I have as you're talking is the um, sort of culture war image is the first world war and trench warfare. You have no man's land in the middle, right? Yeah. And the, what you're describing with culture care is sort of converting that no man's land into a hospitable space mm. where people can meet each other. Yeah. What does making do to convert that space from a place where you're dodging bullets to <laughs> to a place where you can actually in, meet one another and exchange with one another in a fruitful way? J.R. Tolkien, uh, in Front Lines of War, had to, as his friends lay dying all around him, had to imagine a world, a hospitable world, uh, a shire. <laughs> And he had to recall, uh, you know, his own etymology of language to know for certain that that world can exist, uh, even in, in, in the literal hell that he was experiencing. C.S. Lewis wounded, you know, imagine a world in which children had to evacuate London and find a wardrobe <laughs> to enter into Narnia. You know, I came to this conclusion during the pandemic um, I knew that even before the pandemic, that trauma had very much um, a large portion of uh, genesis of great art. We won't have J.D. Salinger writing The Catcher in the Rye if he wasn't traumatized in front lines of war. Uh, we don't have Hemingway. We don't have, you know, Faulkner. We don't, you know, and, and so I, I, I was like, well, if you removed all the uh, world literature and art from uh, those who are directly affected, traumatized by wars. Um, we, would, we would not have 80 percent, you know. And then I, I, as, during the pandemic, I, I was doing further research on this. And, you know, and I, I came to the conclusion that, well, I don't think there's any art <laughs> that doesn't have a direct tie to trauma and, and, and especially wars. Um, and, uh, you know, Shakespeare, he built his theater outside of London because of Black Plague. You know? <laughs> and you wouldn't have the Shakespearean way of uh, playing, you know, one uh, layer of kings and queens and princesses on, on one, one uh, level, upper level. <laughs> and, you know, uh, paying patrons on the middle level and uh, commoners on the ground. Uh, you wouldn't have Romeo and Juliet, you know, if, you, if it wasn't for that kind of playing off of the class systems. Juliet's feigned death would have been known to Romeo if it wasn't for the messenger being quarantined. <laughs> so, so, you know, when I was, when I thought about all of this, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, we're living 
in this what we call you know this dark times of uh, shutdown and pandemic but that that's normative you know that's that's where arts were birth so that brings up another image from art and faith that i really appreciated it's one of my favorite obscure passages of scripture is the brief mention of Bezalel and Aholiab. Yes. And I think as you're describing again, the idea of creating out of trauma with God-given gifts, uh, there are two figures that really illustrate that perfectly, right? Their gifts come, their gifts are given by God. And then eventually the instructions for building the tabernacle and all its furniture, that's given by God. But in the middle is this experience of slavery and you know, etc., where those skills are honed and where the craft is perfected. And I think it's beautiful at a couple of levels, but the thing that I've been wrestling with sort of in preparing for this conversation is that it really obscures the lines between what we think of as profane and sacred, right? Yeah. That that very likely what they've been making all this time is idols or something for yes, a golden calf, a golden calf. Right. And I think an easy application is that the gifts are, you know, one thing or neutral and what matters is how you apply them. But I think there's something more there about this place where the secular and sacred meet. Yeah. Exodus 31 is a, great go-to passage that everybody skips because it talks about all these cubits, you know, and, and the materials for the tabernacle. And, but we have to remember that the, the Decalogue was given at the same time that the design for the tabernacle was given. Law, the tablet will be literally housed inside this beautiful communication box. And to God, everything there is, is significant. As you noted, Based on all he ever mentioned, as 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 the first persons in in the Bible, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to craft this uh, beautiful Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, in which the priest will come in every every year to sacrifice an unblemished animal to to atone for our sins, and um, that. So this is at the heart of worship. And there are these two artists who are filled by the spirit, who crafted, uh, had the ability to make and, and also the ability to teach. This is a, a beginning of a community, beginning of the church, uh, beginning of all that, you know, when Jesus comes and, and becomes a temple, the church becomes uh, uh, the temple uh, of Christ's body. We have to remember that Side by side with the Decalogue, the law, is a uh, this uh, creation of beauty throughout Scripture. And this is what I call theology making, because throughout Scripture, if you remove that portion, it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense that God created the universe ex nihilo without needing to create, you know, you know, I go back and back toward that, uh, push what I do, what we do. You know, and say, remind ourselves that we're not needed by God in any sense. The world is not needed by God. But God created out of love and gratuity and beauty that's excessive. You know, and, and God made the world abundant. You know, and we experience the world in a Darwinian sense of survival of the fittest. But from God's perspective, therefore, you know, our perspective as followers of Christ cannot be an assumption of scarcity. But the way back is based on holy. It is, it is to think about what did God care about, um, you know, and how did God want to communicate to us? Uh, it is through beauty and it is through mercy. Uh, it is it's, it's through sacrifice. Not all of us are artists, of course, who are going to make beautiful things with our hands. But Mako believes pastors can participate in culture care through the way they preach and teach. A theology of making can create space for artists and everyone to flourish. Unfortunately for Mako, too much theology is what he calls plumbing theology that leaves very little room for creativity. I, I say 80% of the sermons I hear out there are plumbing theology, which, which is this, right? Um, you know, God created the world, we screwed up. And then Jesus came and rescued us. 
and we receive Jesus and uh, hallelujah, we are resurrected with him and the Pentecost, uh, Holy Spirit comes and unites us, right? And then we go into the world uh, in, in our great commission. Uh, that's the gospel that I hear. Now, uh, is there anything wrong with that? No, it's just incomplete. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't talk about what I say in the book is that, um, you know, it is like going to church and you receive tools every every week to fix your pipes and you go home and you can fix your pipes because of the Sunday school you went to that explained and learned how to use this tool. And you say, hallelujah, I fixed my pipe. I'm going to bring my neighbor back to church because next week they're going to give me new new tools. And, you know, you go with your neighbor and uh, you take, you know, Sunday class and you learn how to use the new new tool and you come back and you fix your pipe. Now, is there nothing wrong with that except that you're never told, like, what is actually going through the pipes? Like, why are you fixing the pipes? <laughs> and, you know, I... I talk about three things, right? The, the uh, blood of Jesus, right? That sanctifies, that continues to sanctify us, right? The, the, the water of the Holy Spirit that rejuvenates and empowers us to move into the impossible task of being a Christian in the world. And we're forgetting that also the wine of new creation, that wine is coming into, you know, through the pipes, backwards, you know, into us today. So the new creation is breaking in. Uh, if we can receive that, you know, what N.T. Wright says is, is more, uh, perhaps more incredulous than the resurrection itself is the fact that God is inviting to take, you know, hold of that wine, to re really uh, take that in and then co-create into the future of new creation. That part is missing from, you know, many of the sermons I hear. So we sit there in churches, understanding that I want to be saved. I want to be with Jesus. Yes, and I have confidence and I have this um, reality of presence of God in my life. Praise God. And that's it. We leave on Sunday with that mindset. And we come back to church to feel that mindset. But we don't do anything between Monday, Monday through Saturday to create something new into the world, which is by God's invitation, the reason why we're here, right, is, is to enjoy God's presence through the you know, line of new creation coming, flowing back into our lives. And then collaboratively and community, we can invite the world to this impossibility of creating beauty in a world that, that, that is, you know, faced with ground zero scarcity, you know, to provide mercy in, in a place where people are battling over, you know, each other just, just, just to survive. Mako finds a powerful illustration of the power art has to create beauty in a world faced with ground zero scarcity in the traditional Japanese art form of kintsugi. Kintsugi is also a powerful example of common grace. It's an art form developed in a pre-Christian culture that nevertheless communicates deep truth about the power of the gospel to renew and recreate broken people. Kintsugi uh, kin is gold, and tsugi means to mend. Uh, it's the um, venerable tradition of mending broken tea wear from the generations of tea masters who had important tea vessels that they serve dignitaries with. Uh, many times they will break and um, families of tea masters will keep these broken bowls for generations. Then finally give it to a Japan lacquer master. And Japan lacquer, the urushi, is notoriously difficult art form. Uh, it's made from poison sumac. So uh, it, it, takes, uh, it takes many years of practice to master it. But uh, using Japan lacquer, they would mend the broken uh, bowls and, and then accentuate the fracture by pouring gold on top, um, which is a very Japanese way of uh, saying instead of, you know, Western way would be, you know, throw it away, buy another one, uh, or, you know, super glue it back together so it doesn't look like it was broken. Japanese say, no, if it's broken, that is more beautiful than the original. The repaired vessel with its cracks and fissures filled with gold, is more beautiful and more valuable than the original vessel. The artist works breaks and scars into beauty. It's a stunning image of the grace of God. So how do we value the history of what happened um, 
and by creating something new, this is new creation, creating something new by accentuating the fractures, but the fractures become a river of gold, a mountain of gold, a landscape in through which we can see through the trauma right, into some, something more glorious. And, and the whole purpose of Kintsugi is not to admire it, but to use it again. Right? So, so it's a vessel that's been not just fixed, <laughs> but mended to be made new and it becomes part of the uh, cycle tea ceremony again. So, you know, while I, I love this metaphor as uh, or actual reality uh, as, as the example of new creation, Jesus in post-resurrection appearances chooses to uh, show up with his wounds, <laughs> nail marks. What is amazing about that is that, first of all, he chose to be human, but not only that, he came back as a wounded human. <laughs> and, and that's that's astonishing to us. You know, there's supposed to be no more tears. There's, uh, and yet that wound, through the wounds, we are healed. So we, we are looking at the wounds like Thomas did, and we can worship because Jesus has chosen to be with us in our wounds. So what does it mean for our wounds and our fractures? What does it mean when we are broken? You know, and, and, and when you think about that, think through that, you begin to realize that this venerable Japanese tradition, you know, Japan is not a Christian country, <laughs> right? But has captured some, something that the gospel that is hidden, embedded in that culture that is perhaps being kept for us in its pure form. I'll be honest, after almost two years of strain caused by a global pandemic and 40 years of the normal wear and tear of human life, I find Mako's vision for a theology of making both deeply moving and deeply compelling. But what does it look like in practice? What can a pastor do to foster the sort of community that honors people's pain and experiences while leading them to Jesus? First of all, every church is different um, and the context is different the culture is different and and um, you have to ask that question to your congregation and the children right children know probably instinctively especially teenage teenage sheeps that are trying to leap over the fence you know <laughs> like, where are they going like photo them you know like uh, you know instead of like creating high offenses our youth ministry should be like where are you going where do you want to go can I can I come? You know, and 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 then learn, and because they're gonna get lost, you know, there's gonna be a lost sheep in there, and I was one of them. Um, maybe instead of fearing that, we should anticipate that and say, you know, one of you are going to get lost, but I'm gonna come get you. You know, that's why I'm out here. The good shepherd is there leading us. So, so what does that look like? Well, I think it looks like uh, an ordinary community, a small community that has uh, strong boundaries um, that are healthy, um, that is to protect the sheep uh, at night when they come home, <laughs> but have open doors to the world uh, because the cultural nourishment, uh, the grass, the good grass is way out there where we cannot reach most of us, but young sheep have the uh, antennae to find where that is. So follow them and, and go with them and, and guide them, uh, you know, so they can come home. <laughs> but don't be afraid because um, the Good Shepherd actually promised that he's not going to let us go. And um, he's going to be there. And there are wolves and storms and strange things in the forest. Um, but, you know, that, that's where also these treasures are to be found as well uh, for the church. If we're not sure what to do, maybe we can trust the artists among us to lead the way. You know, I, I have learned from my failures. <laughs> I have learned from disappointments. I learned from so many of what I didn't expect. I learned from trauma. So uh, what I say is not really an answer, but an invitation to join those of us who have not only been humbled by what we thought we, we were good at or what we thought we knew, but at the same time, realizing that, you know, the beginning is 
is often our ends and we 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 can start to only journey into this co-creation journey if we're waiting to let go of all of the assumptions that we have about God and about culture and about ourselves and our children and begin to see the abundance of creation uh, breaking through the fractures of, uh, of ground zero in front of us, right? So, so we, 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 we have to be open to walking right through the ashes, you know, if we are to be able to see the light beyond that. And that actually, you know, artists are good at this um, because that's, that's their propensity is to go right to the darkness. And for those of us who have, you know, submitted ourselves under uh, Christ's uh, authority, we have discovered that Jesus was already there, way ahead of us. And we have come to learn that this good shepherd is not only leading us, but is knowingly allowing us to go into places where we we didn't think we could, you know, and and then every time, you know, I do that um, through my art uh, and through my life, you know, inevitably Jesus shows up and says, "What took you so long? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I've been waiting here for you. You know, this is this is this was completely a setup for you to, you know, this interior castle, right? That that is full of splendor and and delight and light. There's you know refractive light." Was, was already there, but you were so afraid, uh, you know, to enter a journey into deeply with me. And and now that you have, you can see so much more, right? That you can go back to your tribe and let them know that there is this splendor out there beyond the darkness that each person can find. And a tribal communal commitment is, is to create a safe space where people can come back even if they're fragment, you know, even if they're uh, traumatized, to be able to share their journey uh, deeply, honestly, vulnerably, and, and be able to embrace that journey as authentic and not try to fix it, but to say, because of what you experienced, we are now a little bit more complete. You know, the fra- those pieces are fitting together and we're gonna behold you as precious broken vessels, right? As beautiful as anything can be, even before it's mended, right? So the Kintsugi master has to see the beauty of that fragment before he or she starts to mend. If that becomes a church, then, oh my goodness, you know, the world is gonna like be be flocking (laughs) to us, you know, um, open the gates because there's, you know, art communities, right? There's these transgressive communities are very judgmental. They're very intolerant. People learn very quickly that even if you run away from the church, the world that they're running into is just as corrupt, you know, just as, you know, uh, power-based. And so if we have an authentic community, that allows us to be ourselves and to be able to, you know, it's a safe place to share who we are and what we have done and what we can can potentially do. That would be such a healing place for anybody. And it doesn't take much to create that. That's beautiful. Thank you. I always like to ask, is there anything that you wish I had asked and I didn't or anything that you would like to say before we uh, end our time together? I've been part of city to city church planting team for a long time. And I can tell you that the best advice that I have is, uh, again, through failures and, and disappointments and, and brokenness. But I, I say that not, not in jest, but in hope that, you know, during the pandemic, during the shutdown, pastors had the most difficult challenge, right, of not being able to meet together and then having to do everything through Zoom and so forth and feeding, like, what what's the purpose of this, you know, uh, does it matter at all? And I want to really say uh, thank you for your heart to serve. I really think it does make a difference um, for those of us who are 
bend on the outside looking in, uh, trying to find light in, in the very dark places. I, I, I know that it, it matters. Um, and, and the beacon, however faint, um, people can see. So keep going. And, you know, I hope that whatever we learned from the last 30 years, uh, church planting and trying to share the gospel is going to create a new season for all of us. And it's, it's going to be a season, I, I believe, you know, just as Shakespeare built his theater and, and brought in the Renaissance, you know, these, these moments of severe darkness often creates lasting, enduring legacies of hope. And so um, that's, that's why it's so important for, for pastors to be encouraged. And I would say finally, that artists can help you both understand the calling requirements that, that this new world is going to challenge us with, but our artists are um, makers and uh, through their making, we will find our voice and we will find our community. Faithful presence and public spheres will look different in different contexts. I hope these conversations have sparked your imagination to consider what it might look like where you live and serve. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. It is written and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Just about everything else is done by Braden Gregg. Special thanks to Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona for studio space. If you want to learn more about Redeemer City to City, you can find us online at RedeemerCityToCity.com.